Dr. Jeff Baylett is president and chief executive officer of Alteus, a subsidiary of Blue Shield of California. Alteus was formed to help physicians and their practices reduce administrative burden, spend more time with their patients, and improve access to quality, affordable health care. Dr. Baylett has more than 25 years of healthcare leadership experience, having served as Executive Vice President of Blue Shield of California's Healthcare Quality and Affordability Division, Executive Vice President at Aurora Healthcare, and President of Aurora Healthcare Medical Group, and CMO of PacMed Clinics, a multi-specialty medical group in Seattle. He also currently chairs the Federal Physician-Focused Payment Model Technical Advisory Committee, PTAC, established by the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act of 2015, MACRA. Like me, he's a board-certified otolaryngologist, having completed residency at UCLA and holds a Master's of Science with concentration in environmental health. Given his breadth of leadership experience, we discuss how he arrived there and advice he'd give up-and-comers, and then broader questions like where he'd like to see changes about the U.S. healthcare system and why physicians need a seat at the table. We also talk about trends in physician practices, why smaller practices are actually good for patients, and what to look for if you're considering merging with a larger practice or selling your practice. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. As a physician, you routinely check your patient's health. But when was the last time you checked the financial health of your practice? You could be needlessly losing money right now. Stop bleeding money. Get actionable insights about your group's financial performance with a free, no-strings-attached assessment from CareCloud, a leader in medical billing solutions, EHR, and more. CareCloud has over 20 years' experience helping large and small providers boost profitability and has helped thousands of practices optimize their financial operations. Request your free revenue cycle assessment and learn more about your group's performance by visiting drpodcastnetwork.com carecloud. That's drpodcastnetwork.com slash carecloud. Dr. Jeff Bailey, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Looking forward to it. So as a fellow otolaryngologist, I'm really interested because most of us, we stay, as my mentor, Dr. Ziad Deeb called it, wax-picking, tonsil-plucking otolaryngologist. Of course, he was a head and neck guy, so you know he kind of looked down at that stuff with a little bit of disdain. But most of the time when you see like CMOs, they've got a medicine background or an intensivist or something like that. And it might be a numbers game. There aren't that many of us. Or it might be just because we've got it pretty good. But you do something completely different. So I'm really interested to find out how one of us ended up as the CEO of a healthcare services company. Yeah. So I'm one of those folks, you know, I got into ENT. I was told it stood for early nights in tennis. They lied. I found out that was not the case. And having trained at UCLA, big head and neck program, did a lot of head and neck surgery in my practice. And my transition to leadership was not purposeful. It was really accidental. I was working in a multi-specialty group practice in Seattle, affiliated with the University of Washington and the former chair of surgery in that group had been the chairman for, I don't know, 30 plus years. And he was retiring 
And we had a surgery meeting one night prior to his retirement and my hand fluttered up. I'd been in the practice about two years and said, well, you know, since the physician's retiring, who's going to lead the surgery group, you know, and everybody looked to his partner and that person <laughs> raised their hand and said, hey, well, I'm moving to Idaho, so it's not me. And then some brainiac in the audience said, well, Jeff, you asked the question, would you be willing to do it? And that's how I got into leadership. I was two and a half years into clinical practice at that time. I'd been a little bit of an entrepreneur before I got into medicine. That's a different story, Brad. I'm happy to share that with you at some point as well. So I had some business experience, but certainly not, I would say, classic leadership training. But nonetheless, I got into the game. And if I'd flamed out within the first month or two, I probably would have got out of the leadership business and that would have been the end of it. But I happened to be effective at the roles that they were giving me. And one thing led to another. And I ended up being the chief medical officer of that group in Seattle. And then I did something that is also fraught with peril. I answered the phone of a recruiter, you know, careful what you wish for. So I started talking to them about a role in Wisconsin to take on a leadership role to help Aurora Medical Group. I'm sorry to interrupt for one second, but something that you said earlier reminded me of a great piece of advice that I got from one of the mentors in my practice. And I'm just going to throw out his name. I don't know if he's listening or not, George Pazos. He's actually one of my partners in my practice. And one thing he once said to me was, Brad, if there's a power vacuum, fill it. And that's ultimately what you did. You didn't say, I want this job. Ultimately, it was like, listen, nobody else is doing it. Somebody's got to do it. Why shouldn't it be me? And that fits with that piece of advice. And like you said, I would have flamed out and that would have been it. And I would have been a practicing otolaryngologist, which is awesome. Right. So I think for those listeners, if you're early on in your career or not, when things like this happen, yeah, if there was a power vacuum, if you're interested, if you're interested, because the other side of that is taking on more responsibilities that you really don't want. Yeah. And to that point, Brad, I would also give you a little bit of a pearl, which is, and I would tell folks listening in, follow your passion because leadership is a contact sport. And if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. And unlike being a surgeon, particularly where you get a little bit of that immediate gratification, fix a problem in the operating room, people are very grateful, obviously, but that's not how leadership in the medical world works. (laughs) Filled with grief, huh? Listen, it's extremely rewarding and you can have tremendous impact, but it's gradual and at times very painful. And if you're not up for the sausage making, then you probably should think twice about jumping in or certainly... Put yourself in a leadership position where you can wet lab a lot of the concepts and experience and exposure, and then decide, is it for you or not? I've had a lot of physician leaders who come out of clinical practice and they're running away from something. They're not going towards something. And those individuals struggle because they're not following their passion. They're trying to get into administration because they're tired or burned out of clinical medicine. And hey, I get that. But medical leadership is not an old folks home where you can put your feet up on the desk as some people portray it to be. That's not the case. Yeah, I think it's a place where our best and brightest need to go. Not that those that are burned out aren't, but you're right. You need to be running towards something. That's an excellent point. So while we're on the topic, is there anything that you miss about clinical medicine? When did you actually stop seeing patients? So I got out of the business when I joined Blue Shield of California as one of two executive vice presidents back in January 2017. I moved out from Wisconsin to California. I gave up clinical practice. And even then, when I was in Wisconsin the last couple of years, I was just doing a surgical assisting with a friend of mine doing endocrine surgery. So I was pretty much out of the day-to-day clinical medicine. And one of the things that I enjoy about medical leadership is that your impact on the clinical community and the patients is much greater when you're in this business, in the administration business, in the leadership business. However, 
the gratification, as I said earlier, about being in the OR, fixing a problem on an individual basis and outpouring of gratitude from the patients and their families. I miss that. I miss being in the operating room. When you're in the operating room, everything else gets shut out. You're singularly focused on the patient. And I miss that, but it's a trade-off and I'm very comfortable in the leadership role right now. It's not like I miss it and it's distracting me. I recognize it and I moved on. Yeah, big deal in the entrepreneur space. And they talk about the flow state, right? The state where like everything else is shut out and you're doing your work. So if you're an author or a researcher, it's hard to get into that flow state. But when we're in the operating room, or when we're with our patients, a lot of times we're just, that's where we are. So it's something that a lot of other careers struggle to find. But to your point, a lot of times that's just the nature of our work. Right. The flow is expected, right? If you're going to yeah. be a good clinician, you better be in the flow. And certainly if you're in the operating room and the patient's asleep, counting on you to get them through, you got to be in the flow. <laughs> you better not be thinking about other things. Yeah. Right. You better be in the flow. I was going to say the only analogy would be pilots, right? Commercial pilots, they have to be in the flow. I don't want them thinking about anything else. But getting getting the plane and getting me where I need to go is critically important. Exactly. And pilots and physicians are in the same ilk, really. If there are any listeners who are thinking about following in your footsteps, and you've already actually given some great pieces of advice, but if there's anyone who is considering seeking a similar path, what would you like them to know that isn't readily apparent? I think, Brad, there's a couple of things. One, as I said earlier, make sure you're as sure as you can be in the moment that leadership is something that you want to pursue. And there's lots of books on leadership. I've had a lot of folks say, well, do I need to get an MBA? And my answer is always, well, maybe, you know, it depends (laughs) on what you're shooting for and what your background is and what your experience is. It's a shame just to get the wallpaper just because. So if you're going to invest the time and the money and the energy in getting an MBA or an advanced degree, make sure it's for the right reasons. And again, goes back to you better be sure about getting in that leadership in general. And I also think you have to be able to be sensitive to how you're showing up. So there are different degrees and different degrees of leadership and the amounts of leadership that you're being asked to take on. And I think if you're not in tune with how you're showing up as a leader, what is in my toolbox, what am I comfortable doing, what do I need to work on to be a better leader, do I have a mentor, do I have somebody who can reflect back how I'm showing up, that's critically important if you can get someone to put you under their wing, someone that you respect, who you are able to observe their leadership. One of the things that I spend a lot of time even today, I study leaders. I watch them in rooms. I watch how they run meetings. I watch how they conduct and respond and relate to the boards. And it's an art as much of it as it is a science. And so you can learn a lot from being observant. You can also learn a lot from admitting that you don't have all the answers and remaining humble. You need to be confident, but I don't think particularly surgeons or physicians in general lack confidence, but you need to have it. It's got to be well-placed. And so those are the things that I think are important for someone who's on the precipice of getting into leadership. And then I would say, think big, but start small. Make sure that you don't overcommit yourself and put yourself in a situation where you are not set up for success. A lot of folks who get into the leadership game, it's not very well thought through on the front end. They're not in tune with what their abilities are and they get put in over their head and they flail. And that for someone who could be really a good leader, who then gets put in that situation, it's really unfortunate because that opportunity gets snuffed out. It's not a good thing. You've really been on all sides of this, right? Because you worked as a physician surgeon, you've worked for the multi-specialty group, you've worked for an insurance company, Blue Cross Blue Shield, but you've also spent some time with CMS. So you've been on the government side as well. 
Yeah. So you've really been on all sides of this, right? Like your understanding of, I'm sure at some point in your life, you've been a patient. So physician, (laughs) insurance, government, patient. So you really have perspectives on all sides. So I'm going to ask you a very broadly based question. What changes would you like to see in the administration of healthcare in the United States? And in addition to that, how has the past year changed your perspective on that? So there's several things I would like to change. First is I think the administrative burden on medicine and practicing medicine has really been just out of hand, if you will. Again, well-intended. A lot of folks are well-meaning, but I just think that we have lost our way when it comes to supporting and directing physicians and the clinical practice of medicine. Way over-regulated in my regard. Physicians have lost that autonomy, which is one of the reasons that, again, 50 or 60% are financially, emotionally depleted or significantly burned out. Again, well-intended people have a tendency to do things to the physicians, not with them. One of the things I would like to see in addition to being to acknowledge that folks are placing burdens on the physician community, and frankly, payers are right in there with it. We're part of the problem, at least that's my belief, is to talk with them and listen and bring them to the table in a meaningful way, not as placating them or appeasing them, but really bring them to the table. They're very smart. They know what's happening on the ground with their patients behind the exam room doors and tap into that intellect and listen and then figure out with them solutions. What's happening in this medical community now is people are coming up with a lot of great ideas and many of them are unfunded and they expect them to just grab on and just take care of business. So that's one of the things I'd like to see changed. The other thing is, and this shouldn't surprise you, is that fee-for-service in its traditional sense, it's a dinosaur and it's not a sustainable way to practice and deliver healthcare. It's not a red problem and it's not a blue problem, Brad. It's a math problem. And if we continue to care for the patients tomorrow, like we're caring for them today, there isn't enough money in the system to pay for it. So moving away from fee-for-service and moving towards outcomes and affordable access to care is critically important. And I think the clinical community understands that. I don't hear a lot of debate about, oh, you know, to hell with value. I'm just going to put my head in the sand and ride this fee-for-service train until it burns itself out but they don't necessarily know how, or they don't have the infrastructure and the tools and support services that they need to be successful. And so I think that's really important. And one of the reasons, I know we're gonna get to my company Alteus in a minute, but I think that's one of the reasons that the physicians are struggling is they there's pressure to move to value. They know they have to move to value, but they don't have all the tools and services. And frankly, the payers are struggling too. I mean, you know, the worst thing you can do with physicians is put all these different value models in the field and they're being incongruent, disjointed. Physicians have to click into this or that for individual patients. And that's not how they practice. They see the patients as they come in. They don't segment their practice. And so that adds to the burden. And at Alteus, you know, one of our guiding principles is we do things with the doctors, not to them. The other thing that we do is we don't have all the answers. Co-creation is a critical principle for Alteus. So we think we're pretty smart. We think we have access to resources, but we know that the greatest asset is the clinical stakeholder community and what they have to say. So working with them is paramount rather than just doing things, sending it their way and hoping that things will play through. So let's talk about Alteus. I had some trouble coming up with questions for you. and. Part of the reason is because it seems like 
Altaeus really does a lot, right? On the one hand, if I'm a physician, if I'm going to practice, I might be able to turn to Altaeus to help my practice become more efficient. It seems like one of your press releases, you acquired a large multi-specialty practice. So now they're under your roof. So I wasn't sure what direction to take it. So we're going to take it in all of those, in all of those directions. So, you know, just uh, interrupt me if I get too long-winded, but I joined Blue Shield of California. I came out of the provider space. That's been my background. That's where I come from. I had never worked for a health plan. I'd worked with health plans. And I remember I was introduced to Paul Markovich, the CEO of Blue Shield, from a mutual friend. And we were talking and I said, look, I've not worked for a health plan. And his comment immediately was, look, Jeff, I have a lot of people around here who know how to run a health plan. But what I need you to do is come in and inject the physician perspective in our organization. And I'm very proud of being able to work with Blue Shield and add my imprint and my perspective on how to work with physicians and clinicians to the company. And I think Altaeus, it is owned by Blue Shield, but it's an independent all-payer organization. The fact that the company Blue Shield fully supported and the board of Blue Shield fully supported the formation of Altaeus is a testament to how they go about and how they believe fundamentally in how important it is to support physicians. And I say that is when I was at the health plan, my role was to lead healthcare quality and affordability, which is all of the medically related elements of the plan. The plan has about four and a half million members pharmacy, the medical aspects, care management, disease management, utilization management, all the usual suspects reported up through me, but also so did physician and hospital contracting. So I had the opportunity and the advantage to look at the whole sort of delivery system and how it was coming together. And it became clear to me that physicians needed support, particularly independent doctors. A lot of physicians were getting out of the game retiring or selling their practices because they felt they they were compelled to sell them. They didn't necessarily want to, but they felt they had to. Incredibly disruptive to patients to try and find a new physician or go join and navigate a new system. And Blue Shield said, look, we really want to help docs. And if we want to help them and not become part of the problem, it needs to be an all-payer organization that's independent from Blue Shield. And I was asked, you know, Jeff, this is sort of a culmination of your life's work would you be willing to start this company up? You know, I was very blessed to be asked and I feel very grateful that I've been given this opportunity to lead Altaeus. So sorry, an all-payer organization. I don't quite understand what that means. Well, we're owned by Blue Shield, but we work with all payers. And what I mean by that is, so Brown and Tolan, the physician, the multi-specialty IPA of 2,700 physicians that we acquired, we partnered. They work for all payers, those physicians. They have all payer contracts, including Blue Shield, but they work with all of the payers and they take care of all the patients. And that's for us to be maximally effective. We need to support the physicians to not just see Blue Shield patients, but to see and care for all of their patients. And that's what I mean, Brad. So we will also work with other payers who want to partner with us. They all partner with Brown and Tolan. So sort of in a way, we're already working with all the payers. So who owns Brown and Toland? Altaeus. Altaeus owns Brown and Toland. Okay. Because in the press release, it had mentioned, this is where I'm getting into areas that I really don't understand. They operate on such a macro level, but I think it would help the physician listeners to just understand how this all works. One of the things it mentions is it gives them access to capital, but they're a 2,700 physician multi-specialty group. These are all independent practitioners of all different shapes and sizes, small group practices, larger group practices, but they're all independent. They are not employed by Brown and Tolan, although Brown and Tolan does have a small cohort. 
of employed physicians. They're an independent practice association, IPA. So they provide a lot of the back office support for these physicians to be successful. They have the contracts, the risk-based contracts for them. They do credentialing, they do care management, disease management. They do a lot of the nuts and bolts to help these physicians run their practices successfully. These are at-risk agreements and they get paid for performance. And that is Brown and Tolan's sweet spot. They've been here for 28 years. They've got a tremendous reputation. They're a great managed service organization. They provide a lot of back office support to physician practices. And we partnered with them because that's what we would like to do as well. Wait, so IPA managed services organization. What's the difference between the two? Well, when you say the difference, I mean, there's some groups have managed service organizations that are employed. So they're employed medical groups that have an MSO. Yeah. That's very common. The Independent Practice Association takes it, I think, a lot farther and they have sophisticated programs and contracting in relationships with the payers and the employers that you wouldn't necessarily find in an MSO, if you will. Alteus is still figuring out what it wants to be when we grow up. We just had our two-year anniversary on June 2nd, so we're relatively new. And frankly, we've had to build this company while sheltering in place. So I would say 50 to 75% of my company, Alteus, I've never met in person. And we have a brand new office that was built in Oakland. We've never been there. Yeah, it was finished in August. We hope to be there by the end of the year. But it's just, that's a lot of headwinds for a new company startup. It's tough to be a startup period dot. But to be a startup and sheltering in place, it's been, it's, we, I'm so proud of what we've been able to do, even though we've, we've been in isolation, if you will. Okay. So then Alteus is an MSO, ultimately. Alteus is, a, is the parent. Alteus is the corporation where myself and the executive leadership team sits. Underneath Alteus are two subsidiaries. One is Alteus Health, and that's where the tools and technology sit. And I can talk to you about those in, in, in a minute. And then on the other side is Alteus Clinical Services, where the physician component of our organization sits. So Brown and Tolan sits there. Other physician organizations that we're talking to, if they join and become partners of Alteus, that's where they will sit in the Alteus Clinical Service side of the business. Clearly, the Alteus Health and the Alteus Clinical Services work very closely together because the tools and support services that are helping the physicians are, can come from Alteus Health, with Brown and Tolan is providing a lot of those support services in their own as a strong IPA MSO. Got it. So it, it really offers a lot of options in terms of how much control of your practice you really want. If you need a little help running your practice, you want to increase it, increase some efficiencies. You come in as a consultant, you provide some technologies, some, some other services, whereas if you want to relinquish more control, then ultimately you would operate your practice, like the clinical part of your practice, but things like admin, payroll, hiring, firing, and right, you relinquish that control so you can focus more on taking care of patients. And, and look, we don't have, we're young enough and uh, small enough. We don't have one size fits all, Brad. And I think that's what you're hearing from me. We have a variety of different ways to partner with physicians up to and including employment. Uh, employment is not our primary sort of position, but where it makes sense, we'll take a look at it. So do you think physicians should be retaining control of their practice? It's a loaded question because it's also really variable, right? How much control? 
So what are your thoughts on it, though? Listen, Altaeus believes fundamentally that professional gratification is critically important. It is our primary principle in our organization, in our vision statement. And the reason we believe that is clinical care delivery, if the physicians themselves are underwater, they're never going to be able to to deliver that high quality, affordable health care that the patients deserve and expect, right, for them and their families. So everything we do goes through the professional gratification lens, for example. There are a lot of elegant single point solutions out there to help doctors, but they tend to add to the problem because they don't either integrate with the medical record or they're a single point solution for one payer. Then you got to click into it. All the portal, the portal craziness, that just adds to the burden of medicine. And we're really trying to move away from that. And we're trying to come up with solutions that are built on a platform, like your iPhone, for example, that work with all of the medical records. Uh, work the way physicians work, communicate with their patients, communicate with their colleagues in a way that really helps advance care delivery and strip away some of the burdens of practice. We're not the panacea, but we think we're putting things in the marketplace uh, that are going to make a difference, Brad. And the last point I'll make around that is you cannot just give physicians technology. If you don't provide at-the-elbow support to maximize the potential of this technology, it's going to become a paperweight. And so that's one of the things that we're building in the Altaeus Health side is when I say tools, technologies, and services, we're providing at-the-elbow support to help these tools be implemented into the workflows of the physicians and the individual basis, which is critically important. Because if the workflow blows up, even if the technology is pretty cool, it's a mission failure in our point. Yeah. Fewer clicks, not more clicks. Yeah. Intuitive. And I don't want to have to worry about the patient has Blue Cross or Medicare or Cigna, or right, it's not, that's not what I want to do. I want to just take care of the patient the best way I can. But if they all have different hoops for me to jump through. How can you be effective? How are you going to be effective? That's a recipe for disaster. And that's why we have the level of dysfunction in healthcare today and the enormous expense. It's a three plus trillion dollar industry. And when you look at, this is the thing that drives me crazy. My wife was on the phone the other day with the pediatrician and the conversation was on speaker and I'm hearing the office staff say, well, we didn't get your facts. <laughs> and I, you know, I'd be in these meetings with my staff and I'd say, how many of you have a fax machine? Like, my God, we're, it's almost a three plus trillion dollar industry. We're faxing stuff. Yep. It's next to the ditto machine. Yeah. Seriously. Let's get the stenographer thing out. And let's start <laughs> cranking out mimeographs again. That's the challenge. That's the conundrum. And people think, well, just give the docs technology and that's going to be the solution. But that's not really going to be the solution. It's a blend of different approaches, one of which is technology, but also payment. Reward physicians for doing the right thing. A lot of the ways physicians get paid now inhibit their ability to do what's necessary and what's needed for their patients. And I'm really happy that at some point, they're gonna, we're going to strike the right balance with value-based care and value-based models that actually work, that are well-designed, that are implementable, that don't just don't tip the boat upside down and recognize and reward physicians financially and clinically for the work they're doing. Because I fundamentally believe that doctors want to do the right. I fundamentally believe that. And they just need help and support to clear the decks so that, like you said earlier, Brad, they can focus on taking care of the patients, which is their passion, which they got into the business to do. It seems a little pie in the sky though, right? Like how, uh, aside from getting leadership roles like yours, right? Where you have the ear of the head of Blue Shield's a not-for-profit blues plan in California. 
Blue Cross of California is part of Anthem Blue Cross. It's okay. a, you know for-profit. It's in 18, 19 states. We're not-for-profit Blue Shield. Okay. <laughs> it sounds like they're sworn. In New York, it's Blue Cross Blue Shield. It's BCBS. Yeah, I know. So that's how the Blues Association rolls. In many yeah. states, they're combined. In some states, they're not. They're sworn enemies in California. Right. They are. They're competitors. And we're, I think, as you were talking about practices, we're not for profit. So we don't, we're not, we don't have quarterly earnings calls. That doesn't mean we don't need to perform and be high performing, but we don't have some of the same economic pressures that some of these for profit plans, like United Health Group, where the Optum has employed a heck of a lot of physicians across the country. They're just, we're just different. Speaking of which, right, this, these incentives, a lot of practices are coalescing, right? They're coalescing into multi specialty groups into hospitals, getting bought by private equity. Some of these hospitals are not-for-profit. Some of them are for-profit. But the coalescing, the fact that it's hard to just put out a shingle. And it sounds like one of the things that you do is you provide the infrastructure for someone to be able to do that. But it's still, you know, it's getting, it's it's not fee-for-service, or we're getting away from just billing someone and getting paid for it. So what's your view on the fact that we're just, these groups are getting bigger and bigger. Is this good for physicians? Is this good for patients? I think there, I think there's goodness on both sides of that question. It can be good for patients. My former role at Aurora, we were in very small rural communities, very small. In the town I lived in of 7,000 people, if you had a cardiology issue on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you were in luck. But if you were there Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, too bad, so sad. There was no cardiologist available in the hospital. So I'm very proud that in those circumstances, health systems that have the economic prowess to be able to employ and partner with physicians, we were able to bring those into the community. So there is value in having these large systems. And I experienced that firsthand. And there's a lot of also clinical delivery and innovation that can happen in these big systems that sometimes the smaller practice don't have access to all those resources can struggle a bit. That said, consolidation for the sake of consolidation has fraught with peril as well. And there's plenty of studies out there that show these larger groups when they come together, healthcare costs go up. And again, that's that's not news. That's yeah. how that's out there. Leverage over the payers. Yeah. There's a lot of hair on that, Brad. And so we fundamentally believe that the independent physician is still critically important in the ecosystem. We are focused on trying to, and I think that's important. Your question about physicians feeling compelled to sell their practices, I think they need to think really hard about who they're selling to and what they're getting out of the deal. Depending on your career trajectory, if you're at the end of your career, then and you sell your practice, maybe the things that you're looking for beside the economic benefits of selling, that may be sufficient. But if you're a younger doc and you're still going to practice, I think you need to think about cultural fit. I think you need to look at the vision of the organization that you're joining and how congruent it is with how you want to practice medicine. And what is the governance? What is your ability to contribute to your future environment and your future practice? What voice will you have? And then at least be right with it. Understand, go in with your eyes wide open. And depending on where you are in the decision contribution spectrum, just be sure you're comfortable with wherever that is from total control, or I'm going to have very limited control or very limited voice. You just need to know the horse you're riding so that you don't put yourself from the frying pan into the fire, if you will. So you think the most critical questions, if you're a younger partner in a practice and you're looking to either merge with a larger practice or something of the like, the culture, 
and how much control you're going to retain? You think those are the two most critical questions? I don't know if I would say culture and governance, which includes what's my voice? What voice will I have? You know, it's a lot of negative connotations around control. So I wouldn't necessarily characterize it that way, but what is my ability to contribute to my practice day to day and how I can best support my patients? And what kind of support are you going to provide me? And I'm not talking about the economic support. I'm talking about what kind of administrative support are you going to provide me when I come under your tent? And how am I going to be positioned? And how is my practice going to get marketed? And I'm using marketing and just how is it going to be exposed to the patients? Not necessarily what marketing plan you're going to have, but you need to know as much as you can about what the lay of the land is so that you avoid surprises and disappointment. When Altaeus is looking at a practice and they're considering whether or not it's a healthy practice or not, whether or not they are trying to bring them under the Altaeus umbrella or whether or not they're going to be assisting them in managing their practice in, in some specific ways. What are the things that you look for in order to determine if a practice is, quote, healthy or not? And don't say EBITDA. That's what we hear from the private equity company. No, I would say leadership and vision. And I'll just tell you, Brown and Tolan, the CEO of Brown and Tolan, Kelly Robeson, I accused her of hacking into my emails because her vision statement was really uncanny. We could almost finish each other's sentences. There was significant alignment on the vision and the mission of our two organizations, never having met her before we started talking to each other. But it was over lunch and I was talking about how physicians needed to be supported and she shared with me her perspective and one thing led to another. Now we're one after a year and a half, two years of working together. But I think that's really important is culture and fit. The economics, there are a lot of people that can come to the table with money. And I'm not being disparaging when I say that. There's a lot of money in the market because, hey, oh, by the way, it's a three plus billion dollar industry. It's a smart investment if you do it. But it's you got to look past the money. You can't just be mercenary for the dollars. You really have to look at the cultural fit. We want to work with groups that want to work with us. It's hard enough just getting the work done. If you got to drag people along, kicking and screaming and compelling and convincing and cajoling them, That's fraught with peril and really a waste of resources and energy. And frankly, we don't have that time for a chemistry experiment. We've got this problem. It's a burning platform and we need to fix it. We're going to go a lot farther, a lot faster with people who want to work with us and become part of the solution than people are putting their heads in the sand and just say, like I said, I'll send you a postcard when I want to change my practice. Not helpful. Without giving away all your secrets, when you do bring a practice on board or you're asked to consult, what are some of the common ways that you help practices to be more efficient? Really, if we get some more like nuts and bolts, some brass tacks advice. So again, we're a new company, but so far, one of the things that we like to do and we do, I think, is listen. So we get into the practice and we talk to them about what are the pain points? What are you, what do you need? What are you struggling with? What can listening and then, hey, here's a portfolio of solutions that we think you might want to take a peek at. Which of these resonates with you? That co-creation is incredibly important. So that's first and foremost. And then wet labbing these concepts with the practice and going in in a way that doesn't blow up their business. It's not easy to go into a practice and not trample the flowers. Uh, And I say that, but you really need to know how to work with the office staff, how to conduct yourself in a medical practice, a surgical practice, where you're not bumping into people, you're not blowing up their workflows. It's just not going to be effective. So I think that you got to hire the right people who know how to do that. 
And then you've got to be able to reflect dashboard on what matters. You have to be able to institute and deploy technologies and services into the organization as seamlessly as possible. And you have to be a trusted partner, right? Because you and I, Brad, we're never going to put it all in an agreement, period, dot. No matter how smart we are, there are going to be things that happen that were not anticipated. And if you don't have a strong, high integrity relationship with that practice, and that practice is leadership, when the proverbial, when it hits the fan blade, you better have a high uh, integrity relationship because here's, I, I've heard it many times in my leadership career, Jeff, I don't agree with you on this particular point, but I trust you and I'm willing to go with it. And that's the kind of relationship that breeds success. That seems like the polar opposite of what happens when you get acquired by a big hospital system, right? They come in, they fire the staff, they change your EMR, they bring some people in to teach you how to do it. You hear a lot of stories like that where it's just pain. And fine, there might have been some money up front for the practice, which is great, the almighty dollar. But to your point, you got to make sure that the person you're getting into bed with is someone that you can really continue to thrive with and get along with. And that's going to listen and understand and take care of, like you said, your pain points. Like they're really interested in your pain points. They're interested in addressing them, not creating them. Right. And Brad, how do you get there? You take your time, you dialogue, you talk to people, you see how they handle problems and how they solve them. And then you decide as you're sitting across the table, can I work with these folks? Do they approach problem solving in a way that resonates with how I approach it? And that's where you go for the cultural fit. We talked to one practice for almost a year and then decided that from a cultural fit, what they were looking for, what we were looking for just didn't line up. And so we decided that it wasn't going to work. You have to go in with that position. You've got to be able to ask the question. You got to probe. You got to come at it from a position of inquiry and you really need to figure it out if that fit there. And then you need to honor your commitments, Brad. Okay. You cannot come in there and say, don't worry, nothing's going to change. And then they have the experience that you just described. That doesn't work either. So you have to be honest, authentic, and you really have to go at it to want to make it work. And if I think if you do your homework and you find a group, you've got to do your due diligence and obviously find out what the strengths are and what the opportunities are within that practice or organization. But once you sort all that out and you have a nice system and process in place, you ought to be able to get the agreement finished. And then the hard work is integrating the company and onboarding them. Onboarding first, learning what they're about, learning what their strengths are, what their pain points are, how to help them, and then integrating at the right time and at the right speed and in the right way. And it's easy if you say it fast, but if you look at our organizations and mergers that flail about and then ultimately fail, it's because they didn't take their time. They didn't figure it out on the front end as best they could, and they trampled the flowers and created ill. And then one thing after another, it unwinds. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. And we're the physician community, right? There are fewer than a million of us. A lot of us know each other. So if I'm going to be working with you, I can just call up some of my colleagues who work with you currently and ask them to make sure that this would be a good fit. And if it's not, and they're not happy, word's going to travel fast. And I would say, Brad, yeah, I say, don't take my word for it. Here, go talk to folks who have joined the team, see how it's worked for them. And then not, nothing's a better ambassador than having someone who's already on the team explain how it worked out for them, how the process played through, and whether you honor your commitments and whether you're a listener and whether you're a collaborator. And again, those words are all buzzwords and they might get you out of the garage, but they're not going to get you far down the road if you don't actually live by them. Yeah, actually, before I joined my group, I called two people who had recently left the practice to find out from them what dirt. And interestingly, 
one of them came back. I've been here for 10 years. And after I became partner, one of the people that I'd spoken to before I joined actually came back to the practice. So that says something about my practice. Looks like you made the right decision, Brad. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, where can people find you? Where can people find out about Alteus? Who are your services available to? So right now we're spending a lot of time as a startup, we're refining our strategies. We're a California-based company. We're service the entire state. So you can find us online. We're working remotely. So that's probably the best way to find us is online. And so we get calls from groups that are considering seeking out a strategic partnership. So they typically will have, not always, but some of them have investment bankers representing them. We get calls, we work with them, we work with the banking community, financial advisors, medical group advisors that help practices sell themselves or position themselves in the marketplace to get capital or other investments. So that's typically the stakeholder community that reaches out to us. We have a grid, if you will, about here are the principles of the organizations we want to work with. What's their characteristics? What's their portfolio look like? How they're showing up? And then we mirror the organization that's ringing our phone against those metrics and make sure that it, it's a call worth taking. That we're, we want to. We only have so much bandwidth, so we want to make sure that we invest our time and energy around companies that seem to embody the same kind of principles and design that are going to help advance our strategy. Actually, I had one more question. One more, one more thing came to mind because you said you're approached by financial advisors, you're approached by practices that are looking to position themselves a certain way. And so what some practices will do, right, is they'll create an MSO and then they'll sell the MSO, right? So the MSO runs their practice. So for those who are considering doing that, how do you make sure that your MSO actually because you've bought into a certain model and you're partnering with someone who fits your culture, but then they go and sell, they go and flip it. They merge a bunch of practices and then they sell to the bigger fish. So how do you make sure that then after that next iteration, you're still in a place that fits your culture? That's the Gordian knot, Brad. You summed it up. I mean, that is what happens with private equity, right? They get in, they buy your practice, they're with you for five, seven years, they get an out, they sell you, and now you got a new owner. Again, it's a little different than what you just asked about the MSO, but the challenges are the same. You've got an MSO that you built to serve your needs. You now sell it to another company. Are, you, are your needs still going to be met? Do you have long-term arrangements with the MSO? Do you have agreements on how that MSO is going to continue to support you post-transaction, post-close? And those are the kinds of things that you, you know, to your question, how do you do it? You need to look out for yourself and make sure that if you're going to sell the support organization, what's your relationship going forward? What's your ability to influence the MSO going forward? What's their commitment to serving you tomorrow as if they've served you today? What are they going to do differently? You need to know all that before you sell. But MSOs are being sold. That's not an uncommon situation now. And frankly, a lot of people are getting in the MSO business. A lot of health plans are getting in the MSO business. Why? Because they're coming to the same conclusion that Blue Shield did. They need to support the physician community. And so an MSO is one of the backbones of trying to provide that kind of support, particularly in the independent practices. Again, not disparaging hospital system groups, but independent practices tend to be high quality, affordable organizations that provide great care. And so the health plans want to preserve that network integrity and having those independent physicians still in the medical community. Extremely helpful. Extremely helpful. This is really great. This is great. So altaias.com, A-L-T-A-I-S.com, correct? Right. 
And then where else can people find you? Like LinkedIn, Twitter? Is there an Altaeus Instagram account? Pinterest maybe? I only go so far, but I'm on LinkedIn. As a matter of fact, several of the bankers have reached out to me and connected with me through LinkedIn. And then we get on the traditional email and the rest is history. LinkedIn is another way. My my digital footprint is pretty constricted, but LinkedIn works. My email address, you can share. It looks like Robin Carr also said, we're on Twitter. Like I said, <laughs> my staff protects me from myself. Brad, you can email me, Twitter, LinkedIn. I'm there. I'm sure your Twitter, I'll do the Altaeus Health, at Altaeus Health Twitter account is also a lot more professional than mine. So please, <laughs> you might not want to see that, but check yours out. So Jeff Baylett, thank you so much for your time. This has been an extremely informative and enlightening interview. And I wish you the best of luck with what sounds like a really, it's going to be great for physicians and then by extension, great for our patients as well. You bet, Brad. Listen, great talking to you again. Thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Before we go, let's give another shout out to our sponsor, CareCloud. Don't let bad billing processes keep you from your hard-earned revenue. CareCloud's free revenue cycle assessment uncovers billing mistakes so you can see how to claim every last dollar. Get your free assessment by visiting drpodcastnetwork.com slash carecloud. Again, that's drpodcastnetwork.com slash carecloud. Don't wait. CareCloud is ready to help your practice thrive. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.